Welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show. TJ, some people say it stands for truth and justice. Some people say it stands for totally Jesus. I know this is High Energy Catholic Radio, and we want to help you fall in love with God. We want to save souls, and we want to slay error as we, uh, as we uh, put out the information that we, are, that, we, that we do so every single day. I'm reporting for duty, and uh, we've got a couple things that we'll be talking about today that, uh, that is of interest. We're going to be having an interview with Patrick O'Hearn, a friend of mine. He wrote a great book for 10. It's called How the Saints Met Their Spouses. Wives, husbands, you wanted to, and, and those of you that are ready to get married, courting somebody, this is a show that you want to listen to. How the Saints Met Their Spouses. Trust me, uh, this is going to be one of those shows that's going to give you some life lessons. Yes, life lessons. The month of May is a very beautiful month. The flowers are starting to bloom. And Catholics dedicate the month of May to the Blessed Virgin Mary. The month of May is always part of the Easter season. Part of the 50 days we celebrate in the liturgy of the resurrection of our Lord. But it's also a time of awaiting the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The celebration of May as the Marian month, it goes back to the 13th century. And it fits well with the liturgical celebrations of Easter and Pentecost as we recall Mary's great joy in her son's victory over death, as well as her presence with the apostles in the upper room, prayerfully awaiting the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So, Mother Mary, Blessed Virgin Mary, pray for us. Today in the Catholic Church, we celebrate two saints, St. John of Avila, St. Damien de Wooster. Let me talk a little bit about, <clears throat> about the uh, St. John of Avila, who is now has been declared a doctor of the church. St. John of Avila was born in Del Campo, Spain, around the year 1500. John experienced a deep conversion in his teens. He left off his law studies, like St. Augustine, and spent three years in prayer before entering the seminary. He celebrated his ordination in 1526 by serving dinner to 12 poor men in his home. Although John wanted to go to the missions, he answered the call of the Bishop of Seville, Spain, to preach and minister throughout Andalusia, which is southern Spain. And John fervently promoted holiness for both laypersons and priests, in 2012, in 2012, Pope Benedict proclaimed him as a doctor of the church. And he's also the first diocesan priest to be named a doctor of the church. St. John of Avila, pray for us. Also today... <clears throat> We also celebrate the feast day of St. Damien of Molokai. In the 1800s, 
the Hawaiian Islands suffered a severe leprosy epidemic. In order to contain the spread of the disease, those infected were isolated to the island of Molokai. Unfortunately, the Hawaiian government was remiss in their duties to properly care for the community of lepers, and the suffering were abandoned to the island without any means to care for themselves. Ashore, they found no law and no organized society. There was sexual immorality, violence, and drunkenness ignited by liquor made from tree roots. It became the way of life for the lepers. Hope was also abandoned, and many of the inhabitants lived in despair. Some described the island as a living graveyard. But in 1873, a Belgian missionary priest, <coughs> Joseph von Wuster, known as Father Damien of the Fathers of the Sacred Heart, was sent at his own request to Molokai to work among the lepers. He had already lived and worked among the Hawaiian people for nine years. His heart was consumed with compassion for the sickness and suffered, suffering which had destroyed these simple people. Originating with the European travelers who had discovered the paradise known as Hawaii, Diseases such as smallpox, cholera, influenza, and tuberculosis would nearly wipe out the native people who had no immunity to these foreign viruses. The most devastating disease would be leprosy. And so Father Molokai, Father Damien of Molokai, requested and was granted permission of, uh, of, of going on a mission and serving exclusively on the island of Molokai for the lepers. Since there was no cure for leprosy at the time, this choice meant certain death for the young priest who had just turned 33 years old. <clears throat> Poet and author Robert Louis Stevenson wrote of Father Damien's decision. He said, quote, He shut to, with his own hands, the doors of his own sepulcher. Close quote. But amidst the chaos encountered upon his arrival on the tiny island, Father Damien worked immediately to restore human dignity and respect for life to each person he organized burial details and performed funeral rites so that the death might have some beauty. He provided medical attention for the wounds and sicknesses that could be healed. And uh, Father Damien basically gave his life. He gave the people sacraments, baptizing, confirming, offering confession and last rites. Father Damien contracted leprosy himself in 1885. And in those final years, he worked diligently to complete the work that he had begun building orphanages, organizing clinics, constructing housing. He died on April 15, 1889. Pope John Paul II beatified him in June of 1995 under the title of Blessed Father Damien, Servant of Humanity, Pray for Us. And now he's a doctor, uh, and now he's a uh, Saint Damien of Molokai. I want to read to you today's gospel. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He takes every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and every one that does, he prunes so that it bears more fruit. You are already pruned because of the word that I spoke to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit on its own unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, because without me you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me will be thrown out like a, like a branch and wither. People will gather them and throw them into a fire, and they will be burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you want, and it will be done for you. 
By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of verses jump out at me here. John chapter, in uh, today, John chapter 15, <clears throat> verses 1 to 8. <clears throat> here's, what's, here's what stands out. <clears throat> when our Lord says in, in verse 2, when he talks about pruning, God the Father must, must trim away our selfishness to increase our faith in love. Pruning refers to, in the Bible, to trials and fatherly discipline that we experience in this life. Our Lord also talks about bearing much fruit. The fruit of righteousness are born in us by the Spirit, and they're mentioned in Galatians 5.22. Without this life-giving sap which flows into the branches through the vine, we can do absolutely nothing to please the Father or move closer to salvation. So how do, you, how do we know that we are walking in the Spirit, walking in with Christ? How do we know? Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Those nine fruits of the Holy Spirit are a good indicator if you're walking with the Lord. Also, in verse 6, the Lord talks about being thrown into the fire. That's damnation. Damnation awaits every branch that withers away. And Christ, <clears throat> anybody who walks away and withers away from Christ, becomes worthless. And as Ezekiel the prophet says, uh, he also said that the residents of Jerusalem... Uh, as the vine branches that failed to yield fruit and so became the fuels for the fires of divine judgment. And, uh, and also in verse, uh, yeah, and in, in verse number eight, I like the way our Lord ends it. He says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove that you're my disciples. You want to prove that you're a disciple of Christ? <clears throat> you have to bear fruit. You have to walk in the obedience of faith, the obedience of faith. Hey, I just want to mention to you a couple of items that are interesting are you ready for this 43 percent of u.s adults think a maternal gynecologist cannot assess a newborn's biological gender that determination should be best left to the teachers union <laughs> are you kidding me all i could say is be me up scotty there's not enough intelligence surviving on planet earth for me to stay here can you believe that 43% of U.S. adults think a maternal gynecologist cannot assess a newborn's biological gender. Also, psychiatric treatment. The unvaccinated are the envy of the world right now. I've been, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough says, I've been following the news story out of Canada where, where it's being proposed that people who, who decline the vaccine should receive psychiatric treatment, shared Dr. McCullough. The people who are declining the vaccine are the ones that have the most critical thinking, the most discernment, the strongest minds and bodies around us. They're the last persons that need psychiatric medication, said Dr. Peter McCullough. Here, here, a common sense doctor. God bless him. Hey, stay tuned. We're going to have an interview with my friend Patrick O'Hearn. Stick around. We'll be right back. St. John of Avila and St. Damien, pray for us. Hey, we've got an old friend on the show, Patrick O'Hearn. Patrick, welcome to the Terry and Jesse show, my friend. Hey, thank you, Jesse, for having me. 
Hey, this uh, this book that you've written, Courtship of the Saints, How the Saints Met Their Spouses, this is relevant for every single baptized Catholic on planet Earth. Uh, I think I think uh, you're scratching somewhere where the people are itching. That that's a that was a that was a, a great contribution that you gave the Catholic Church by writing that book, my friend. By the way, it's a it's a it's a ten book release. If they want to get the book, where do they go to, Patrick? Yeah, so ten books and Amazon. It's available. Got it. Pre- I prefer for you to go to ten books. My audience, go to ten books if you can. Uh, yeah, Amazon carries it as well, but uh, let's let's go right to the Catholic publisher and and give them some uh, give them our business. The book is called Courtship of the Saints: How the Saints Met Their Spouses. Tanbooks.com, Tanbooks.com. Patrick, let me ask you a question. Uh, the secular world generally uses the word dating. Uh, in 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 traditional Catholic uh, uh, parlance, we use the word courting. Well, w- number one, why is courtship so important? But also I would like to hear what would you say is the difference between dating and courting? Mm-hmm. Yes, the reason courtship is so important today is as we've seen, you know, marriages are in, in, in disarray, you know, 50% end in divorce. And as I say, how your marriage ends up is it, it's the result of how you prepare for your marriage. And mm. so courtship goes back to, to tradition, biblical times. You know, even Our Lady and St. Joseph, they court, there's courtship. And I have them in my book. So this is something that's steeped in the history of the church and uh, in, in the Bible. And then dating, So and then the word actually courtship came around it was in the 15th century. And it derived from the term a courtier, which was an advisor to a king or a queen. And then it had... Then it progressed on later in that century was the idea of wooing a woman with the end goal of marriage. Now, on the other hand, dating came into more place in the 20th century. It was, it was basically a, it was a uh, it was a term that was used as a kind of a slang for lower class people that went out, and it dealt more with popularity. It was it was an idea of popularity of the contest, and so. And the the main, and I see really the main difference between the two is, you know, courtship looks to heaven, it looks to eternity, to mm. marriage, and it, it involves the father and the mother. There's a whole parenting aspect, and then you see dating is just it's focused on the present, you know, pleasure, and uh, and I do have, as maybe we'll talk in a little bit, but there's four stages of courtship, and Father Rippinger was so kind enough to allow me to use some of this information, which I use for my book. Well, what, just jump stages? into it. You you just yeah. teased us. Yeah. Get, yeah. Go right now. Tell us the four <laughs> stages of courtship. Yeah. yeah. Come on. Four stages of courtship are the first stage is friendship, and then that lasts three to six months. And again, there's no physical affection during that time. You know, it's a period of getting to know someone, and you, your main purpose is to determine if that other person has virtue. And then if you determine that virtue, and, you know, obviously attraction, there's other levels. Then you ask the father's permission. You move to the next stage, which is courtship. In the second stage, you ask the father's permission, you know, for a man to see if you want to proceed. Again, no physical affection. And this is in a group setting. And, again, this is all to protect the virtue of the person in terms of vir- uh, virtue, sorry, uh, purity and chastity. And that's to grow in self-denial. And then the third stage is you would you would go to the betrothal and engagement stage, and that's again three to six months. This is a, the man would again ask the father's permission here to marry his daughter, and this we see um, again. There's very this is when you can start showing some small signs of affection, you know, holding hands, quick pecks on the cheek, and even lips. But it's again 
the, the goal here is to grow in moderation. And then the final stage of courtship is marriage. And that's your goal is to become a saint together. So these are the four stages. Uh, Father Ribbinger, um, again, set these out. He used it based on St. Thomas Aquinas. And it's, it's, it's very clear, Jesse. It's, you know, dating has kind of left many things ambiguous. And here, thanks to Father Ribbinger and the saints, we can see, you know, um, what, a, what a true marriage should look like, which begins with courtship. So let me ask you a question, Patrick. Why were these married saints the greatest lovers? I mean, uh, uh, you'd probably have uh, some people that would say, no, uh, Elizabeth Taylor with her eight marriages, she's the greatest lover. No, uh, uh, you know, the guy from CNN that was the anchor six um, on marriage number six, he, he's a great lover. Why are the saints greater lovers than some of these uh, Hollywood pop icon figures? I say the saints are the greatest lovers because they love God more than their spouse. They love God above everything, and their love for their spouse has flowed from the Eucharist. And, and that is the reason why, you know, St. Elizabeth of Hungary, when her husband, King Louis, would come home, when he'd be out of the country, she would rush to him and said she would give him a thousand kisses, very affectionate, and is all from, as I said, you know, from the Eucharist. And the more we love God, the more we can love our spouse. And, they, and, and I often said to these saints, you know, in their bedrooms, right, they had the crucifix above their marriage bed, and they saw before themselves, they were comparing themselves to Christ and his love for the church. It wasn't comparing themselves to some Hollywood celebrity. And that's why they were able to love so much, because they were loving with the grace that God gave them. That makes complete sense, because again, uh, if God is love, as the Bible says, and, uh, and the Eucharist is God, uh, as, as we continue growing or filling ourselves with sanctifying grace and inflaming our soul with love, uh, it's, it's, it's going, there's going to be an overflow. It's going to spill over into our spouses and our children and our family. So that makes complete sense. And then I think, Patrick, I think that's why uh, I read from, uh, it was uh, Dr. Janet Smith years ago. She, she wrote a study on divorce in one of her books. And she said that practicing Catholics, not Catholics, I didn't say Catholics, I didn't say fake Catholics, practicing Catholics have the lowest divorce rate. And I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's because God is love, the Eucharist is God, and the more we receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, we receive more sanctifying grace, so our capacity to love increases for our spouse. So uh, that just com- makes complete sense. Patrick, so what advice would you give to someone to meet their spouse based on these saints' stories? I say, you know, how we have a, the near occasion of sin, right? And that keeps many people from not meeting their spouse. And on the flip side, you know, I talk about this near occasion of grace. And the most important thing I say is to be in a life of prayer. And we see this with St. Gianna Mola. She's one of the, I interviewed her daughter. And she was praying a novena to Our Lady, asking for direction. It was on that ninth day of her novena. And prior to that, she went on a pilgrimage to Our Lady of to the Lord's Shrine. She wanted direction. And after that novena and going to that pilgrimage, it became very clear on what path God wanted her. And that was to go in the path of marriage. And she met her husband at a priest's first mass. So you talk about, you know, you're not going out to these bars, I mean, and going places of sin, but you're going to the God's holy places. And that's a great place to meet your spouse, church in the line for confession, and then the other thing I think is patience and trust. Many of these saints, they could have gotten married earlier. St. Zelie Martin, she had several suitors, several wealthy men that she could have married, but she waited for 
the right person, St. Louis. And it wasn't the perfect person. You know, she didn't wait for St. Joseph, although people say that he was like St. Joseph. Hmm. And I think that that's an important lesson for our young people to have patience and trust. You know, maybe you want to get married when you're 20, but God's going to say, you know what, you're going to have, you might have to wait a little bit. Maybe your spouse right now is in a convent discerning their vocation. And so just always having that, uh, that trust of God that it's going to work out if you, if you, you know, if we resign ourselves to his will. And then finally, I think modesty is huge. And uh, there's a saint, um, blessed uh, Anna Maria Taggi. She was a holy mystic and uh, her husband was drawn to her modesty, the way she dressed. And I think the way, you know, a godly woman, if you want to find a godly man, you got to start dressing like that. And so those are just a few points that I think for our young people to, to, uh, they, they can implement from these saints. You know, I saw I saw this uh, good Catholic woman at at Holy Mass uh, at the pair. She had a T-shirt a couple of years ago, and it said, uh, and she, she was a very modest, a holy woman. Her T-shirt said, "Modest is hottest." I thought that was kind of cute. <laughs> modest is hottest. <laughs> I love. Someone mentioned the other day. I forget that you know Cinderella, right? She got the prince, and all she she only had she was missing one shoe, right? It was a meme or something. You know, that was the only part that was missing. <laughs> So, Patrick, how can married couples grow in love based on these saints' stories? As I, as I alluded to St. Elizabeth of Hungary earlier, her affection for her husband, and I think today, often maybe it's because of prudishness, but I think the husband and wife, you know, when, when that husband comes home from work, first thing you do, you, you run in and you give your wife a kiss on the lips, you know, and you're not afraid to show affection. Your kids see that, that love that you're, you know, you're, you know, you're cuddling with your wife, you're giving her hugs. And even as your daughters get older, right, they see that they get a hug from their father. You know, it's so important. And so affection is huge. The other thing is constant communication. Even throughout the day, you know, we see um, uh, Pietro and, and uh, uh, sorry, and Gianna, they would write love letters to each other, especially when Pietro was on a business trip. So sending a wife to your text or, uh, sorry, send, her, send your wife a text saying, I love you. How are you doing today? You know, just keeping that and also words of affection, um, I love you, you know, just as we pray the Hail Mary. Say that to our bride, you know, I love you throughout the day, just like the Hail Mary. And then I think forgiveness is huge. You know, and, and some of these saints, I included many stories of betrayal. You know, one one uh, lady, she's a blessed Elizabeth Cora, Mora, sorry. Her husband left her, abandoned the family. And then after she died, uh, after he died, he became a priest. But she prayed constantly for his conversion. So I think forgiveness is, is a huge element. What was her name again? Yeah, her, her name is Blessed Elizabeth Mora. So she had two daughters, and then uh, after she passed away, her husband you know, took all her funds, cheated on her, and, uh, but she kept praying for him. And then, and then right after she died, he became a priest. There's been several stories that I've read of, of, of female saints that, that have had bad marriages, and they just, uh, they just kind of uh, you know, kept on uh, you know, trucking through that bad marriage, doing penance and prayer, and their husbands, some some of them upon their their death, some of them post death, had a massive conversion to Christ, and some of them some of them became priests. So uh, she's not the only one, and and that's that's again the power of redemptive suffering for your husband. That that can be the reason why God put you on planet Earth to save that man that you married in the Catholic Church in the sacrament of marriage. Patrick, how can people get your book? We're going to have you on for another segment, but how can people get your book? Yeah, so go to uh, www.tanbooks.com. So what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, is it because, again, we, you're seeing the crisis in marriage 
uh, in the West, and you said, man, somebody's got to address this issue and give some yeah. some uh, concrete examples of some uh, yeah. uh, of, of some role models. Is, is that is that yeah. what your thinking was? Yeah, that was one of them. There's several reasons. I also see the crisis in the church, right? You know, with our with our bishops and priests, and and yeah. the way that mm-hmm. I see the holiness is coming through the family, and and so I see right now it's like we we elevate you know priestly stories. How did you hide your calling? We hear that all the time, and it's it's beautiful. But we need to talk about how how do you have a how do these saints have their calling to marriage? So that was a reason. I've always been fascinated with marriage stories. I feel like you know our church is going to be. You know, we need more saints, and it's going to come through marriage. Amen. Hey, stick around, Pat. We got, uh, I want to have you on for another segment. We're going to continue talking with Patrick O'Hearn in his new book from 10, Courtship of the Saints, How the Saints Met Their Spouses. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Terry and Jesse Show, we got my my buddy Patrick O'Hearn. He just authored a book with 10. It's called Courtship of the Saints, How the Saints Met Their Spouses. He's an author, editor, literary consultant. Uh, Yeah, he's he's a good brother in Christ. And we're talking about his book. Let me ask you a question, Patrick. Let's talk about uh, the role of the saints and angels in finding a spouse, particularly... I want you to talk about St. Raphael, his role, St. Padre Pio's role, because I believe you have two stories in your book uh, where you talk about what they can do to help couples today. I do. St. Raphael is actually the, the patron of finding a spouse. And, and you know, that beautiful story in the Old Testament from Tobit, he leads unknowingly, leads Tobias to his future wife, Sarah. You know, here's Sarah's seven previous husbands have been slayed by the, the demon Asmodeus. And so, of course, any man would be trembling. And I, I love the words that St. Raphael said. He goes, he said, do not be afraid. You know, she was destined to you from eternity. And so here is this, this archangel standing next to, you know, Tobias, just encouraging him, prompting him. And I think he wants to do the same for our single people. And there's a reason that he is the patron of finding a spouse. And I, in the back of this book, I include a beautiful prayer to him. And I think all our young people uh, should should seek St. Raphael's prayers, um, finding a spouse, and, uh, and especially your guardian angel, too. I mean, you cannot put that past you. I mean, it's so, so important. And then I think Padre Pio uh, introduced, it was a couple, Dr. Germain and uh, Orchard Bianchi, I was able to include their marriage story in there, and they they went over to, they met in San Giovanni Rotondo, and Padre Pio basically was like their matchmaker, and he inter- introduced them, and it was interesting, after they met, Jermaine, um, uh, he had, he was an American, and uh, his wife was from the Czech Republic, but, in, and he was, he went to Padre Pio for advice and confession, and he's like, should I marry her? And he goes, marry her? and prepare well for your marriage. And he was, he was going to actually officiate at their wedding, but he, he died the next month. He was too ill, but he blessed their marriage. And what's their daughter, one of their daughters is uh, sister Faustina uh, Pia. She's a sister of life. And she wrote this beautiful prayer, the litany of trust. So it's, you see how, like how these saints, just how important they are. And I think too, like St. Padre Pio, 
we think, oh, man, I wish he was alive, you know, when I, when, so I could meet my spouse. I wish I had that grace. But he's even more powerful in heaven now, interceding for you. So I think we need to call upon St. Raphael and St. Padre Pio, uh, not only to find our spouses for those who are, you know, discerning that, but even just to restore our marriages. Yep, those are my go-to saints every single day. St. Raphael and St. Padre Pio, they're, they're part of my morning prayers uh, in terms of, of the, uh, the, the communion of saints that I call upon. Those are my go-to every single day. So we're, you and me are thinking in the, right, in the same direction there, Pat. Hey, let's talk about singles in the Catholic Church. They're, they're often forgotten. So what message of hope do you have for them? And what is the responsibility of married couples and priests to single Catholics? Yeah, I have a section on here called Be Apostles to Singles. And I think often it's, we forget about them, you know, especially, you know, you have on St. Valentine's Day and you just, they're kind of left alone. And I feel like as, as Catholics, we do have, you know, married couples should consider, you know, actually you want to ask their opinion, but like, hey, I know another friend. Can I, can I set you up? You know, would you like to meet this person or even a priest? You know, often in this story, you know, I had St. Jose Maria Scriva and he acted as a spiritual father for one, um, one, one young man, uh, Tomas Alvera, and Tomas was going to join Opus Dei, and, and, and uh, St. Jose is like, no, you're not called to this. And I think as priests, sometimes they, I'm going on a little tangent, but they can be vocations directors, can try to recruit people. But instead, these spiritual directors need to see what's best for this soul. And sometimes maybe they're advising two, two single people at the same time and says, you know, hey, I, you should meet this person. And I think that that's the role that as we need to build up strong marriages. And, and I think one of the ways we do that is not only praying for them, but, you know, asking, can we introduce you to someone? It's, you know, another Catholic that we know, not being afraid to do that. That's a very good point, Patrick, because you're right, especially during Valentine's Day. I think a lot of our young people that are single, they do feel like, okay, what's in it for me here? You know, they're just kind of twiddling their thumbs. And, and that, that's a great point you make. We, we can't forget them. They're, I mean, they're part of the mystical body of Christ too. And they're probably, you know, most, most Catholics are, are destined to the sacrament of marriage just by percentage. I mean, 99.9% of Catholics will be called to the sacrament of matrimony and probably about, you know, a fraction of 1% will be called the holy orders. So you're right. We have to, we have to pay more attention to our single people. So let me ask you, um, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, the devil's out to destroy marriage. There's one demon in particular, right in the Old Testament, in the book of Tobit, you just mentioned him. That's no secret. So in these stories, you just you don't just present the glamorous stories. You present some stories where some of the future saints were betrayed by their spouse. Some of them made major mistakes. And how did God bring good out of these trials? And how can he bring good out of our marriages today? And one of the stories I have is, you know, St. Rita, right? Saint, the saint of the impossible. And her story, you know, she met, married a guy. She, was, she wanted to become a nun since she was little. And her parents said, you know, since you're our only child, we want you to take care of us when you get older. And she's like, that, I, can, I can live with that. But then she's like, then we want you to marry this person. And so basically she was, had an arranged marriage to a man who was not very virtuous at all. And that guy, he was very, turned out very abusive to her, verbally abusive and perhaps even physically abusive. And, and during that verbal abusive, she just, she kept praying for him. She kept silent and asking God to change his heart. And it was only after her humility and prayers won him over. And then he eventually had a conversion 
And when he had that conversion, then God blessed them with two children. And I thought that was very interesting as well, because it's like God wasn't going to bless them with children because his heart was, he was living, he was a sinful man, just, just completely abusing his wife. And so once he converted, they had two children, and then he was eventually murdered by people from his former life after his conversion. So he had many enemies, but then obviously he reconciled with God. But these enemies got back at him and killed him. And then, as you know, Rita's two boys tried to seek revenge on the murderers of their father. And Rita said, Lord, take my boy's life before they commit, you know, the sin of revenge. And so she lost her two boys and her husband. And then she eventually sought to become a nun. And uh, she was led in the middle of the night by three, three, three saints. I think one of them was St. Augustine. And that's she kept applying for the convent. And they kept saying, no, no, no. And eventually, that's why she's the patron saint of the impossible causes, because she became a nun, even though cause she was led, you know, mis- mystically or whatever, mysteriously to the, through the convent walls in the middle of the night. And uh, but she gives she gives mothers great hope and life to you know continue to pray for your spouses, especially those that are very rough and uh, maybe possibly verbally abusive and uh, and and also falling away from the faith. What? Yeah, and. Uh... She, she, yeah, she's one of the iconic stories for people that uh, are in despair when you read her life story and, and, and you'll develop a devotion to her. You'll start calling her in your, in your daily prayers. You, you'll start calling her for intercession. Uh, very, very inspirational story. Talk about persevering. I'm, I'm sure some divorce lawyer would have told her, you know, back in her time, hey, just leave the bum. Just come over here and stuff and fill out this uh, application. We'll go to divorce court and we'll, we'll call it a day. No, but some of these women, Patrick, back in the Middle Ages and in times past, they were they 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 knew the 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 holiness, the sacredness of the sacrament of marriage. They knew what they did, and boy oh boy, they had they they held onto their marriage with tenacity, didn't they? They did. And one of the stories I just have a brief part portion of it, but there's a guy named Blessed Jacopone, and his wife was Bona di Bendetti. And Blessed Jacopone, he was a very wealthy lawyer, secular, and uh, right after they got married, he invited his, his wife, she was very holy, Vanna, and she, there's a tragic accident. She fell off some stands at a public event. She died, and, wow. and, and, when, and when, when she discovered that she died, she was wearing a hair shirt on, and his, she was basically offering up that hair shirt, her, <laughs> her suffering, mortification for her husband's conversion. He became a, bro, a religious brother after that. And he is attributed as writing the Stabat Mater. And I think it's just, it just shows you again, here's a wife, just mortification, offering, you know, her daily sacrifices, her sufferings. Because, you know, we think about Jesse, the cross sometimes, God says, take up your cross, right? That cross could actually be your spouse, right? I mean, that's you're carrying your spouse. I heard a priest say that one time in a homily, and he, he, was given a, uh, he was given a talk about that. And this guy came home, and he picked up his wife. And he started carrying around the house, and the wife's like, what are you doing? And he's like, yeah, the priest told me to pick up my cross. Now, I don't recommend that, but I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't recommend that, especially if you got back problems. Uh, Patrick, uh, uh, so what's the role of father in courtship? Yeah. I say the father, as according, you know, thanks to Father Ripperger, I mean, I used his words, but he's like the watchman and the guardian of, of, the, of, the, of his daughter, and he can, he can basically, his mission is to see if this man is honorable for his daughter, you know, and that's, 
a huge role. And I think about, we have these, these security cameras, right, that protect our, our house. You know, we want to protect our children's physical body, and rightly so. But do we have the same protection on their soul, which is a million times far greater than, you know, any physical physical property that we have? And I think the man, the father has to be in touch. And obviously he can he can end the courtship at any stage. Like if he sees this man isn't honorable enough. Now, the, the, the daughter can go ahead and write, she could go behind her father's back and get married still, right? I mean, but I think a most virtuous father, and he, he recognizes that, like, that this man is not virtuous for his daughter. I think a daughter should, in obedience, you know, respect her father's wishes. So, again, he's this watchman and guardian of, her, of, the, of his daughter's soul. Amen. Hey, last question. So what do Catholic men and women in general, uh, they have no idea how to pursue women chastely and purely. What can you say about that? I think it it comes down, I'd say mostly from our our fathers. You know, we're hmm. a lot of the times. You know, we're we're steeped in you know pornography, all these sins, and we're just we, we just think like you know we're going to let the church conform, you know teach our children, yeah. but this is our responsibility. Amen, Patrick. I hear the music, my friend. Good job, brother. You've done a a, a mighty work for Holy Mother Church. Get Patrick's book, Courtship of the Saints: How the Saints Met Their Spouses. Tanbooks.com. Courtship of the Saints, How the Saints Met Their Spouses. Go to tanbooks.com. Thank you, Patrick. We'll have you on again, my brother. God bless you. Keep the faith. Thank you for what you did. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. We're back to Terry and Jesse's show. I look, I look forward to Wednesday, last segment, because we always have one of our buddies, one of our friends from Church Militant. We got Nick Wiley. He's an anchor over, for, over at Church Militant. And they always give us an update on the church news, on politics and the culture wars. Nick, welcome, brother. What's going on in our crazy world today? Hey, Jesse, how's it going? Everything's going Great. pretty well over here. I hope, uh, hope everything's going well for you there. Yeah, uh, thank so you. So first off, the, uh, the Archdiocese of Baltimore is about to hit, be hit with a historic class action lawsuit. Wow. So if you remember, if you remember back in April, they uh, had the report that came out from the AG's office about the uh, eight decades or so of abuse where um, just in the report itself, so not, not uh, just, just what they know of, over 600 children abused by 158 uh, priests slash nuns and other few other workers, but mostly priests. And so now there's two lawyers that are that have teamed up, and there's going to be this huge class action suit against them. And what makes it worse is uh, just recently too, we found out. So there's there were names that were redacted out of the report, and the Baltimore Sun just came out and gave us some of those names. And five of them that five of them were uh, priests who were high up who were covering up for other priests. And so it turns out that four of these five still minister actively today in Baltimore. Unbelievable. It looks like it looks like Epstein Island has infiltrated our church as well. It's not only politicians. And it looks like, guess what? It looks like Baladad was correct. Okay? Uh, there's been an infiltration of homosexuals into the church. And a lot of these have a lot of these men have proclivities towards children. Uh, you know, some, Nick, I wonder if, as a lot of these clergy, these modernist clergy, that's what they are—they're modernists. 
when they proclaim the gospel and they read the passage in Matthew 18 about our Lord saying, if you hurt one of these little ones, it's better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and jump off a bridge into the ocean. I mean, does it, I wonder if it connects with them. Does it register? What are they thinking as they read the word of God? And there's these passages about you're going to be thrown into the fire. Uh, I, I just, I, I just think that it no. just goes, goes right over their head. But you know what? As painful as this is, this is a good thing because this is part of the purification that the Catholic Church needs. And we know this was happening. This has been happening way before Vatican II. So people say, this is, these are the fruits of Vatican II. No, it isn't. This, these uh, sexual predators, this, this goes a hundred years before Vatican II. This has been around a long time. But uh, this is a battle that we're going to be fighting until the, until the second coming of Christ. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can even see it. I mean, now, I mean, the, the most vulnerable of them all children is, is the absolute worst. But I mean, you can see even in the first councils of the church, they were talking about men being uh, priests being promiscuous with women. And so there's always been a sexual depravity problem throughout the priesthood. Now, now we're seeing it with the whole media outlets and social media and all. We see it to a much greater extent. And I'm and I would bet that it probably wasn't as depraved as it is now with bringing children into it and all. But it's it's been it's been a long time problem that I mean the the light coming shining forth from it that we're able to see these things and able to do something about it is great. But yeah, to your point exactly, I, I just I have to think they just, they just no longer have a conscience. They they just they literally. They, they, they say these words, and they've said them so many times, that, and, they, and they don't care. And it also plays out in their parishes. And you see why the people where these priests were normally are so just uninspired in the faith. It's because they're saying these words that they don't mean, that, that mean nothing to them. And so, of, of course, you have laity who, who, who know no better themselves. Because if the, if the priest is just doing these horrible things and still just going to Mass like nothing happened, I mean, what do you expect from the laity? Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting, Nick. Uh, this is why you know there's so much sexual immorality amongst the laity, pornography, people not getting married in the church, you know, just kind of you know shacking up. And I'll tell you why, because it, it, there, there's an old saying where you have if, if you have weak bishops, you're going to have weak priests, and where you have weak priests, you're going to have weak laity. And so it, there's a trickle down effect from the bishops. Because the bishop is the door, key, the gatekeeper. He's the Saint Joseph of the diocese. He's the man that's supposed to, you know, lead, protect, and provide us. But if the Saint Josephs are weak, then their priests are going to be weak, like him, and effeminate and immoral. And that's going to translate to all the contraception amongst the lady. Nobody getting married in the church any longer. Shacking up, masturbation, pornography. Uh, it, it's, it's a trickle-down effect, and it comes from the head all the way to the body, and the bishops are the heads of every single diocese. Yeah, it's, it's totally true. If, if you have, I mean, if your leader is, your, is, in a sense, your weakest link, what does that say about <laughs> you? If, if the guy who's supposed to be your rock and the guy who's supposed to guide you is actually the weakest link on your team, I mean, man, how are you supposed to make it? Not good, not good. That's why we. That's why we, throughout the day, I, I I say this prayer throughout the day. Jesus, I trust in you. I just walk around throughout the day in my mind. Jesus, I trust in you. Hey, what else is on the news, my friend? Yeah. So, um, speaking of this sexual depravity, the, uh, the New York Archdiocese they had this. Uh, the Church of Saint Paul 
had this um, this trans exhibit. God is trans, a queer spiritual journey. They had this exhibit that they had that now the archdiocese is coming out. You know, we knew nothing about it. You know, they they, they didn't inform us. We the archdiocese claims they found out through the news that this is going on in one of their parishes where this this queer art exhibit that also claimed that the devil wasn't even real. And isn't uh, New York the same place where they have that statue uh, to Ruth Bader Ginsburg of a of a golden you know demon god with ram's horns? It's, it's New York, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's. Yeah. I, I believe yeah. so. It's, it's it's all it's all it's all disgusting. <laughs> it's it's, it's <laughs> happening right under the, the one of the biggest archdioceses in the United States, a, a cardinal seat. It's it, a man who should be even more of a leader than a bishop, a cardinal, who yeah. is who apparently either has no control and doesn't know that something's happening or just isn't doing something about it. It's, it's absent. It's another absentee father, bishop, cardinal. Yeah. You know, the, the new Testament calls, uh, bad shepherds. It calls them hirelings. Uh, in other words, some of these, some of these prelates, Nick, just, I'm just going to be honest with you. And both of us love the Lord, love our faith, love, you know, love everything about the Catholic church. But you know, we, we, we can't be blind to things that are happening within Holy mother church as well. Some of these bishops and some of these cardinals, it's just a job to them. It's a nine to five job. They got they got amazing perks. Everything's free for them. They get a credit card for everything. They live in nice plush palaces. It they they have no apostolic zeal. They don't have that Saint Peter, Saint Paul. I'm ready to be, uh, you know, crucified upside down and proclaim the name of Christ. They don't have that zeal. They've lost it. They're, they're hirelings. It's a job to them. And uh, we as lay people, uh, we got to continue praying for holy. Pr- we don't need priests. We need holy priests. We, need, we don't need more bishops. We need holy bishops. So lay people, uh, keep on praying your rosaries. Keep on doing your holy hours. Keep on praying for our, our clergy because, uh, yeah, they need a lot of help right now. So what else is new, yeah. my friend? Yeah, so... Um... Another news: uh, President Trump met with some pro-life leaders the other night. They, um, if you recall, a few weeks ago, he uh, made some stir in the pro-life community because he, a spokesperson of his, basically said that you know, insinuated that his pro-life uh, mission was done. That you know, it was satisfied that you know the Supreme Court came down, gave us a Dobbs decision, let the states work it out. And so a lot of pro-life leaders were upset about that, of course, because, I mean, to just give the states these unlimited rights to have child murder is not good at all, and it's not something a leader should ever be okay with. And so they met with him. Um, The the results of it aren't public, but um, some of the things that they're saying that they they came out, uh, like the Susan B. Anthony president and all, were saying that the meeting went very well, and so we need to pray that President Trump or whoever is going to be the next president does seriously take this issue into account because we've seen a lot of conservatives back off of it now. That's the big conservative thing is stop talking about abortion. It's ruining us in the polls and all. And it's to, I mean, to, to a Catholic, that is the hill we die on. It's, it's right. not that we're, we're not, we're, we're not giving that up. That, that is the hill that we're going to die on if nothing else, because we'll never have a society if that isn't something we can agree on to end. You're right, Nick, but but uh, that that only makes sense to a practicing Catholic, not to a fake Catholic like Joe Biden. And there's a lot of fake Catholics in the church, and a lot, a lot of them sit next to us at Mass. I, I would just be, I'm going to just say, 
a safe assumption about 50% of the people next to us at Mass do not believe the teachings of the church. They go there for cultural reasons. And so, uh, yeah, this, this is the hill a real Catholic should die on. And I think there's a lot of Protestants of goodwill that would die on that hill as well. Uh, but uh, uh, the, only, the only thing that I would say, not to defend President Trump, is uh, he, his, the, his mitigating reason, I think, he doesn't have a Catholic m- mindset like you and I do. You and me have a Catholic worldview. Our moral conscience has been, form- has been, performed, uh, has been formed by the Catholic faith. Donald Trump, his moral conscience, he's a billionaire businessman from New York. He's starting to make strides towards Christ, but, you know, in the Presbyterian sense, not even the Catholic. And so I think with the limited gospel knowledge that he has as a, you know, Presbyterian that just came back to his faith, I think he's done a pretty good job with the limited amount of Christianity that he has, uh, versus Joe Biden, who's been a Catholic all his life. Shame on him. 80 some years sacraments, Eucharist, he should know better. There's no excuse for him. Donald Trump, I give him a little pass on not on not being as strong as he should be because he's not a Catholic. He doesn't have the sacraments. He doesn't have the Eucharist. He doesn't have Marian devotion. He doesn't understand these things. So there's going to be some blind spots in his intellect. That's all I would say. Yeah, and so, I mean, bringing it back to New York, he was in New York for the longest time. That's Cardinal Dolan. Where is Cardinal Dolan there? He, Cardinal Dolan's happy to go on Fox News. There's even pictures of Cardinal Dolan at um, events where he's near President Trump. He can get to him. Why has he never talked to him? Down in Florida, he's, in, he's at Mar-a-Lago. Why, why is he not meeting with bishops there? Why are they not reaching out to him and trying to give him the gospel to the fullest extent? There you go. Bingo. Hey, Nick, thanks a lot, brother. Love to have you guys on every Wednesday. Nick Wiley, Church Militant. God bless you, brother. Hey, that's a wrap. The Terry and Jesse Show. Remember, do not be afraid. It's mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. We serve the Virgin Most Powerful, our 12-star general. Pray your rosary every day. Live in a state of grace. Read your Bible every day. Go to Mass as often as possible. Let's unite our prayers to the sword of St. Michael and continue delivering powerful blows to the kingdom of darkness and tear down the gates of hell, which are modernism, Marxism, and masonry. See you next time. Same Christ time, same Christ channel. God bless you. Keep the faith.